Thank you. Well, for one last time, let's turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we have uh, been in this, in this book for 17 months approximately, uh, going through it verse by verse, and we are now in the very last section, the last sermon on this. We'll pick up Ecclesiastes next week. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture, as Paul concludes his long letter to the Corinthians, I'm reminded of a time back when uh, John uh, Robert Kennedy was assassinated, and one of, uh, of the prominent Americans said, I do not blame him, but the society that produced him. And uh, Will Rogers had made a comment years before that that was more appropriate. He said, the, uh, there's been two eras in America, in the, in the American history, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. And I think uh, they were passing the buck, and I don't think we've gotten a lot better, have we? Uh, our world is filled with people who do not want to take responsibility. Uh, they want to pass the buck, but the uh, scriptures do, does not give the believer that, that uh, opportunity to do that. And Paul writes to these Corinthians, and as he does, he is saying to this group of people that are pretty self-focused, as we've seen, that you need to take responsibility for that which God has given them to do. And so we're going to look at some responsibilities. He closes down this great chapter. And the first one has to do with the responsibility of giving. We looked at that last week in the first four verses. And he talked there about giving proportionally, giving systematically, uh, each person giving. But the Corinthians were not listening very well, apparently. And therefore, he needed to go on in this next epistle and give more principles concerning giving. So very briefly, run over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and see what he has to say about these other principles of biblical giving. If you want to be a giver to the Lord's work as God has designed you to give, then you not only need to understand the principles of the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 16, but of the verses, the principles found in these two chapters. Let me give you these seven principles very quickly. We should, be, we should give generously and joyfully in verse 2 of chapter 8. That in a great deal, uh, ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowing in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave uh, of their own accord. Uh, these people gave joyfully. They gave generously. They didn't figure out to the last penny what a, a tithe would be. You know how it is at a restaurant today. You go to a restaurant and it used to be 10% tip. Now, then it moved to 15% tip. Then it's 20% tip. And they're talking 25% tip. So I want to be uh, a good tipper. So I sit down when I see my bill and get out my pocket calculator, my phone, and add it up to the, and it comes out $5.71 for a tip. So, Marcia, do you have a penny? I want to be exactly right, you know. Well, that's not what these people did when it came to giving to the Lord. They weren't looking for the precise number. They were looking to give joyfully and generously. And also, they give according to their free will. We saw at the end of verse 4, or verse 3, I mean, when he says they gave of their own accord, begging us for, with much urging for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. Begging, <laughs> they didn't. They weren't pressured by gimmicks. They weren't pressured by tricks. They begged to give. What a what a wonderful thing when somebody comes to me and says, "I'd like to give more more money to such and such." And do you have some some need here at the church or some individual? What a joy it is to hear somebody talk like that. Begging for the opportunity to give out of their free will. Thirdly, uh, flowing from the dedication to the Lord. Verse five, and this not as we had expected 
but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. That this is the heart of all biblical giving. We first give ourselves to Christ. We're dedicated to him. We're sold out to him. Uh, that's, that's the heart. If you, if you are sold out to Jesus Christ, then giving flows with that. It's not a hard process. It begins by our dedication to him. Fourth is the example of Christ in verse 9. For you know the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What did Christ give up for us? Everything. There used to be an old hymn that we sang at, our, at the church here. Uh, it's not in any hymn book that I know of today, the newer ones. There was a hymn we sang a lot back in the day. And we had one old saint who, uh, every time he had opportunity, he would request this song. And uh, some of you uh, who have been around a long time will remember that. Uh, the song was Out of the Ivory Palaces. And it goes something like this. Out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe, only his great eternal love made my Savior go. That captures uh, this particular verse of Scripture, the example of Christ. Then according to our means... Verses 12 to 15 talk about that, but just look at verse 12. For if the readiness is present, is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And so it's according to what the Lord has given us. Um, several times over the years, somebody has come to me and said, if I win the lottery, I'm going to give a tithe to the church. All right? And, uh, and I say, well, great. Uh, what are you giving now? because you're not going to win the lottery, right? I remember hearing of a Baptist pastor, pastor up in Chicago, I think, who uh, liked to preach on this theme a lot about gambling and lottery, and he's very much against it, preached all the time that the lottery was sinful to play. And then one day he found out his wife won it. Uh, and as I understood it, he was willing to take some of her money for the church, even though he was against it. I don't know, you're not going to win the lottery. I hope you're not playing the lottery. But if, if you did win the lottery... You know, I don't, you probably wouldn't give much at all. People get more stingy the more wealthy they are. Uh, so let's not worry about that. Let's talk about what's in your pocket right now. So this is applicable to, to every um, body in the room. If you're 10 years old and you get a $5 a week allowance, you can give out of that $5. If you're a, a, an executive here and you make a half a million, I don't know if anybody here does that, but uh, please see me after the service if you do. But if you make that kind of money, then you, then you can give in proportion. It's according to your means. That's a perfect example that the Lord gives us here. And then cheerfully, I love this verse 7 of chapter 9. Go to chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must, must do just as he proposes in his heart, not grudgingly nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. A biblical giver must pass three tests. The re, first of all, the reluctance test. Uh, they do, the word here, reluct, grudgingly, means out of sorrow. Not out of sorrow. I've heard pastors say, give till it hurts. Well, that Paul doesn't agree. If you give till it hurts, you've given too much. Give, you, give, you give not reluctantly, but you give, as he says secondly here, by passing the uh, compulsion test. He says, not grudgingly, nor under compulsion. Don't let anybody pressure you to give. Don't follow any gimmicks. Don't look at, have anybody come to your house and say, well, we know what you make. Here's what you should give. That's all in biblical giving. And so we pass the compulsion test. But here's the attitude test. You are to give cheerfully. Give cheerfully. The word in the Greek is hilarious. Well, you know what that, what that means. Hilarious. 
And as I've talked on this over the years, I've often said and never yet seen it happen, when, when you, as you line up to give, maybe give your offering today at the offering box in the back, wouldn't it be great if about six or eight of you broke down in laughter? You know, just hilarious laughter. I get the privilege of giving to the Lord's work. Well, I've never seen that happen, and some of you nuts will probably do it today when I walk by, but, but my point is it should be cheerful, uh, even to the point of hilarious in our giving. That's how happy we are to give to the Lord's work. And then finally, verse 15 Based on God's indescribable gift, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What's that? That's Jesus Christ and his salvation for us. Uh, it can't be any better than that, right? Our giving is, comes out of, out of the fact that Jesus Christ gave it all for us. That should be our motivation for giving. And when we do, there's two promises found in this passage of Scripture as well. Uh, verse 6, it says this, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This verse has been massively misused in uh, Christendom today. You hear the televangelists and different ones uh, talking about a, planting a seed of faith. And so if you give, uh, if you give X number of dollars, if you, give, if you give $100 to their ministry, you plant that seed, they say, then the Lord will give you 1000 back. If you, uh, if you give, you give 10000 he'll give you 100000 if you give, I've actually heard this, if you give one house, he'll give you two houses. If you give one car, he'll give you three cars. If you give an airplane, well, you see where it's going, right? That's not what this verse is saying. Uh, some of the people he was talking to, he's already explained, are poor. They didn't get rich by giving generously and, and out of their means and all the biblical principles. They didn't get rich doing that. But they got rich in the things of Christ, the things that matter. He says, concerning this, if you sow bountifully, he's talking financially, you also reap bountifully. I think he's talking about what God gives us in relationship to him. And there's another principle, another promise, I mean, that he will supply us with everything for good works. Look at verse 8. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have abundance for every good deed. And so the, the next promise is this, if, if you give faithfully, the Lord will provide you with means that you can participate in every good, good deed, that you can personally be involved in, in the Lord allowing you to use funds for good, good purposes, for his, for his glory, for his work, and helping other people. So don't be surprised if you're a biblical giver that the Lord blesses you financially. He doesn't promise that, but he may very well bless you financially, not so you can hoard it or become wealthier but so that you can give for every good deed, every good need that's out there. So these are some of the promises. Here's a second responsibility. Let's go back to our passage in 1 Corinthians 16. A second a set of responsibilities has to do with taking advantage of opportunities that the Lord gives us here. For sake of time, because we're really running late today, I'm going to skip over most of this. But I would mention here that Paul is, Paul is under the gun by these people who didn't feel that he had uh, kept his word, that he said he was coming at a certain time and didn't come. Some people were criticizing him for that. We see that over in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. And so, uh, uh, so he deals with that here some, but he, he, tells the, he gives us two reasons why he did not come as he had originally planned. Number one is because it was good for them. He says that in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 and 23. Uh, it was good for them that he not come then, 
And secondly, because he had a door of opportunity in Ephesus. A door of opportunity. We see that in verse 9. For a wide door for effective service has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He says, look, I have an opportunity here. I'm not going to leave this great work here in Ephesus to come down there at this particular time. Paul was not vacillating. Paul was not lying. Paul simply said, it's good right now for me to stay at Ephesus. Paul had a three-year ministry. There's the most productive ministry of his, of his whole life. Uh, from that hub at Ephesus, uh, the whole region, all that area, what we call Turkey today, was reached for the gospel to some extent. It was a powerful and wonderful ministry. And at the same time, Paul underwent great persecution. In 1532, he said, I fought the wild beasts at Ephesus. And therefore, he, he's talking about the adversaries that are there, the, those that would would persecute him and give him harm. And yet he, he stayed on because of the effectiveness of that ministry. Real ministry, folks, exacts a price. Sometimes people think, well, if I serve Christ, it's going to be easy, it's going to be happy, there's never going to be any roadblocks, everybody's going to get along. It doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes there's great blessing and great fruit, and other times there's great battles. And Paul knew both, but he persevered for the cause of Christ. I've, I've used this little story not too long ago, but I wanted to, I really like it. There was a, a pastor who wrote a book not too long ago about certain things, and he, he told a story about when he was young, uh, just a little boy, and going to Sunday school class. And in Sunday school class, this teacher, Mrs. Williams, uh, used the state-of-the-art technology of the time, flannel graph. Now, some of you who don't know what flannel graph is, this is flannel graph, okay? For those of you in a certain age bracket, uh, you who have been deprived of knowing what this is. And this is the Apostle Paul. Does he look like, he looks a little bit like Jesus, but uh, the Apostle Paul. And this, uh, this pastor said, when I was a little boy, uh, our teacher, we'd sit on the floor sometimes, and she would teach us using flannel graph. So how many of you were raised up using flannel graph? How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? There's a few of you out there. All right. <laughs> Sorry about that. You are deprived. Um, <laughs> I didn't say depraved, I said deprived, all right? Okay, anyway, they, as one, of the, one of the thrills that the teacher used this material was that uh, sometimes she would let the, the students put the pieces up on the board. And, uh, and, yet one, and she used the Apostle Paul a lot because he's in so many stories and she used him a lot. The one day, uh, this pastor and a friend of his got in a tussle over who would get to put the Apostle on the board and ripped his little head off, all right? Well, the teacher wasn't deterred, and she, she taped it back on. And then a little later on, some, some little knuckle-headed girl spilt uh, Kool-Aid all over the Apostle Paul, and now he's purple. And so here he is with his head taped on, and he's all smudged up in purple, and, but she kept using him. And he said as he looks back on that many years later, he thought she was, she was given a principle uh, there that she didn't even know she was giving. And that is that if you're going to serve Christ, there's times you're going to get your head tore off, and you're going to get smudged. You're not going to get through life serving Christ without some smudges, without some, some tears, without some difficulties. If you think so, give up now. Because the ministry is often difficult because you're fighting a great enemy. It's a pretty good lesson, I think, she taught him. And, uh, and us as well. And by the way, if you'd like to learn more about Flanagraph, talk to our Sunday school superintendents. They'll show you how to use it. Third responsibility. Chapter 16, verse 10 on down, Paul that, that now moves on to talk about people. And this is a very interesting section. You know, when we ended with chapter 15, we ended on a great crescendo, didn't we? 
Apostle Paul gave us this wonderful material on the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of us. He ended in verse 58 with one of the most powerful, wonderful verses in all of Scripture for the servant of Christ. And we just assumed that he quit then. That should have been where he stopped, right? But neither Paul nor the Holy Spirit agreed. He had something more to say to these people, and he's telling it to them now. And as he does that, he talks about our, our responsibility to, to others who serve Christ. And he points out four people or people groups that he wants to mention here. And perhaps, verse, going back to 1558, perhaps he's bouncing off this verse of scripture that every servant of Christ should love. And it says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And then he starts talking here at the end of this chapter about those who serve Christ. And there's four groups, four people groups here. And as we get into these very quickly, uh, he is giving us uh, people that these are not, if we're using the metaphor of a football team, these are not the superstars. The Apostle Paul was the Tom Brady of, of Christianity. If you don't know who he is, I'm sorry for you, I don't know what to tell you. But the greatest, greatest quarterback who's ever lived is Tom Brady. I don't think there's any people who are going to argue with that too much. We can fight in the foyer later. But, but Paul was the greatest apostle, the greatest, perhaps the greatest missionary servant of Christ who ever lived. He's a superstar, right? Now he's going to mention some people that are not superstars. He's on the varsity team. He's a superstar. But what about Timothy? Verses 10 and 11, as he said, talks about Timothy's coming to them. And he says, don't despise him when he, when he comes. Send him away in peace. Uh, Timothy was a... Was, Maybe he, made the, maybe he was on the team, but he was a B player. He was no superstar. He was always getting kicked around by somebody. We see that in other passages concerning Timothy. He was not a kind of guy that could stand up to the mob like Paul could. But he's a good man, a faithful man. And he was on the team, but he wasn't a superstar. Then there's Apollos. Now, Apollos was on the team too, and for a short time, he may have been a shining light in verse 12. He says, concerning Apollos, my brother... I encouraged him, to great, him greatly to come to you with the brethren. It was not at all his desire to come now, but, it, but he will come when he has opportunity. Now remember, in the first chapters, the uh, Apollos was a, was a minor celebrity for a while, and they tried to pit Paul and Apollos against one another. And when they did that, uh, Paul, Paul said, I'm not going to play that game. We're not against one another. We're on the same team. And then he comes to the very end of the, of the book and he says, look, I love Apollos. We're not against each other. We're, we're for each other. But we didn't always agree. Could you imagine two Christian leaders not always agree? Come to our staff meeting. We don't, we don't always agree. Okay? And, and Paul, Paul says, Apollos, I want you to do this. And Apollos says, no, I'll do it later. And he didn't. But that didn't mean Paul was against him. He just allowed him to do other things. But Apollos was, was a man who, of God who uh, served on the team, but not the great star. Then we come to verses 15 to 18, and he talks about individuals that don't even get off the bench. Uh, they're probably on the junior varsity at best. Nobody would have known about any of these people if we didn't have them written down in a passage like this one. He speaks of these spiritual leaders in... Again, I'll just kind of skip through most of these, but notice some of the names, Stephanus and Fortunus, verse 17, and so forth. These are local leaders at the church who serve Christ and serve in faithfully. He says, you should honor these people. You should submit to their leadership. But they were not great, they were not great 
superstars by any stretch of the imagination. They were simply normal people who loved Christ and served him. And that's where most of us are, right? Uh, we're, we're just serving the Lord. We're not superstars. Nobody's going to write a book about us. Nobody's going to talk about us. And uh, we're not going to get a, a page on YouTube anywhere. We're serving Christ. And I think that's why, if I could take the time for a second, that some years ago when Ray Bolts put out his song, Thank You, Lord, that it touched the heart of so many people. I want to read a few words of that. You remember that song? He says, I dreamed I went to heaven and you were there with me. We walked the streets of gold beside the crystal sea. We heard the angels singing that someone called your, then someone called your name and you turned and saw a young man. He was smiling as he came. He said, friend, you may not know me now, but then he said, but wait, you used to teach my Sunday school when I was only eight. Every week you would say a prayer before the class would start. One morning when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart, thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm so glad you gave. Then another man stood before you and said, remember the time a missionary came to your church and his pictures made you cry? You didn't give, have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took that gift and you gave it, and that's why I'm here today. One by one they came, as far as the eye could see, each one somehow touched by your generosity. Little things that you had done, sacrifices made, unnoticed on the earth, heaven now proclaims. And I know up in heaven you're not supposed to cry, but I was, but I was almost sure there was tears in your eyes as Jesus took your hand and stood before the Lord. Uh, you stood before the Lord, and he said, My child, look around you, for great is your reward. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm of life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm so glad you gave. I like that. Because that tells of little people that nobody else knows about that serve Jesus Christ. And who knows what great reward that may give in the future. Then there's Priscilla and Aquila, or Prisca here, verses 19 and 20. They might got into the game, but they were neither superstars either. They were people that everywhere they went, they, they started a church. They had a church in their home in Corinth. They had a church in their home in Ephesus. They had a church in their home in, in Rome. They had a church again in their home in Ephesus. Everywhere they went, they served Christ in the background. How mightily they served the Lord. You ever hear of the mothball fleet? After World War II, almost 700 uh, fighting uh, Navy vessels were put in mothballs. They were never used again. Eventually they were scrapped and, and sunk and so forth. But 700 fighting vessels that had once been in war were mothballed. Tell you what, Priscilla and Aquila were never mothballed. They spent their whole life serving Christ from the beginning to the end. What example they are. They weren't superstars. They might not even made the varsity team sometimes, but they were serving faithfully Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. And that's why he doesn't stop in chapter 15. He wants to remind them that there are faithful servants that should be recognized and honored in our hearts. And if we don't recognize them, Christ will. Who are serving the Lord Jesus. Now I want to back up to verse 13 for just a moment. And there's some parting thoughts. Most of them found in verses 13 and 14. I can't leave this chapter without looking at these. Here's some of the parting thoughts he has. First of all, be on the alert. Their spiritual enemies are everywhere. He wants to destroy us. He wants to take advantage of us. Be on the alert. There's, shadow, there's, there's danger in the shadows. I grew up in a a little suburb town of about 2,000 at, at that time outside of Indianapolis. Um, and I never looked behind my back to see if anybody was going to jump on me. 
My mother shoved me and my brother out of the house in the summer at age 10 or so and said, if you come back, you're going to pay the consequences. We never came back because we didn't know, want to know what the consequences was until lunch. And so we went out and played. We did all our stuff. We went everywhere. Mom didn't know where we were and didn't care and didn't look. I went to Chicago at Moody Bible Institute. And the first day I walked out of the dorm to look around, the police officer stopped some car right outside of, of Moody, grabbed some guy, threw, pulled him out of the car, slammed him across the hood and handcuffed him and tucked him away. I said, I'm not in Brownsburg anymore. You know? <laughs> They warned us constantly of the dangers lurking around the corners. Don't go here. Don't go there. Always be alert. Who knows what's there? There's dangers out there. And if you don't know that, if you don't know that spiritually speaking, you are going to get caught up in the, in the you know, say, Satan is your enemy and so is your flesh. And they will destroy you if you're not alert and using the, using the means God gives us. Secondly, stand firm in the faith, verse 13 as well. The faith here refers to doctrine. Stand firm in the faith. You know, in, about 50 years ago, there was, there were, there, they came up with the gap theory. And the gap theory is not concerning evolution. That's what we usually think of that, or chapter 1 of, of Genesis. The gap theory that they came up with is that how are we going to get people in the gaps to come to church? They don't want to come to our church services. What are we going to do? And so they began to tinker with the methods and the message and so forth to bring people in. As a result, perhaps it meant well, but as a result, they began to dumb down in massive ways the teaching of God's word. They don't go, didn't go through the scriptures. They didn't teach basic doctrines. Fifty years later, uh, Christianity is, has been dumbed down to an unbelievable extent. Every couple of years, Ligonier and, uh, and so, so, the Southern Baptist, Lifeway, uh, does a survey of Americans and evangelicals and what they believe doctrinally. And uh, here's the whole report right here, but let me give you very quickly what they found this year, just a month or so ago. Here's what they found about evangelicals, people who claim to be evangelical, not just Christians, but evangelical Christians, conservative Christians. Here's what they found. One half believe that God changes. God is not immutable. He changes with the times. Two-thirds of the people are, believe that we are born in a state of innocence, totally unbiblical, which teaches that we're born in a state of sinfulness and lostness, dead in our sins. One-third do not see the importance of church membership. Church can come and go. It doesn't matter. Well, over one-half believe that, that God accepts the worship of all religions, all religions. Christ is not exclusive any religion, Buddhism, Hinduism, can worship the Lord. It's okay. And one-fourth do not believe that the Bible is literally true. That's evangelicals. Well, how has that happened? Because we've dumbed down Christianity so much to bring them in with the entertainment and fun that we haven't taught them God's Word. Now, let me tell you something. Uh, we're not against fun here. I'll tell you why. We're here to teach the Word of God. And that's why, that's why we made your own, because the Word of God honors Him, and it teaches us how to live life for Him. And without it, it doesn't matter how much fun you have, it doesn't matter how much you enjoy the services, you will never walk with God. And therefore, we come to the Word of God. And He says here very clearly, stand firm in the faith, the doctrine of the truth of God's Word. And you cannot stand firm if you don't know what the truth is. Third, act like men, and everybody until... Uh, Modern times knew that simply meant have courage, have courage. Be strong, he says as well. 
And then love, verse 14, here's the fifth one, love. Let all that you do be done in love. This church so badly needed to understand love that he wrote a whole chapter, chapter 13, about love. And he says, no matter what you do, if you don't have love, you're a lot, you're a, a lot of wind and a lot of noise, but you do nothing for, for the Lord Jesus. And then recognize doom facing the unsaved. Look at verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is a, to be accursed. I do not think, Paul is saying, I want them to be accursed. This is not a, a, something he wants. This is a fact. The unbeliever is, is doomed. The unbeliever is under the curse of God. And for that reason, we want to tell them about the love of Christ. Because it's not simply that they're not religious are not going to church, they don't know Christ, and they're eternally forever damned if they do not come to him. So Paul, who said in Romans chapter 9, he would give his own soul for the salvation of the Jews, certainly wasn't saying, I'm glad these people are, are, are accursed. He desires for their salvation. And then one final thing, rejoice in Maranatha. I can't quit without this verse 22. He says this, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is accursed. Maranatha. Maranatha is an Aramaic word. Some believe that it was a word of greeting, that when Christians met one another on the street, they said Maranatha. Kind of cool to say that. Uh, Jews said to one another, peace, salam. Uh, we say, hi, how are you? Uh, the early Christians said Maranatha. Uh, Maranatha it could be translated in the Greek from either past or future. In the past, if it's past then it means the Lord has come. The Lord has come. Maranatha, he's come. The incarnation, the resurrection, the crucifixion. If the Lord has come, now get this, if the Lord has come, everything in this world has changed. Is our ultimate statement of belief. He, he has come and redemption is now possible. Forgiveness is now possible. Death has been defeated. Resurrection is ours. Eternal life is ours. If he's come. Maranatha. Historically, the church took this verse as a past tense, as speaking of the incarnation of all that Christ has done. But it also will be translated in the future tense. And if it's a future tense, it's saying, Lord, come. Lord, come now. It would be much like what was uh, said in Revelation 22, 20, the life prayer of scripture where it says, come Lord Jesus. So either way, whether past or future, it is a, it's a statement of truth. It's a prayer of hope, either way. If it speaks of the past, it reminds us of the incarnation and the work of Christ, and the world has changed. If it speaks of the future, it reminds us of our hope, that which we are waiting for, that's what we long for, the return of Jesus Christ, who will come and take us to himself and as he says in John chapter 14, we will be with him in our heavenly home forever and ever and ever. Maranatha. Let's close in prayer. We're not going to have our song today because of time, but let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you now. Stand with me. Please stand with me. Father, we thank you today for... These words that we've looked at at the very end of this chapter, a chapter that probably is, would be very easy just to skip, um, and yet I trust has blessed us today. Father, thank you for this group of people that have come to worship you, and I trust their hearts have been blessed by your word. Lord, there's some that may not be 
Christians today, they don't know you as Savior, may, may what we've seen today touch their hearts, may you expose their, their spiritual minds to truth about themselves and about you. Bring them to yourself, Lord, even as we pray right now, even today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Maranatha.